Today we're going to look at some reasons why we can believe the Bible is true. Oftentimes a parent, when they say, believe it, what is their um, reason for why you should believe it? Because I said so, right? I'm the authority. You have to do it. Just believe it. Well, while we could, we could reason that, there's also other reasons that we can believe that the Bible is true. And thankfully, the Bible is a, a rational book. And so we're going to look at different uh, examples and reasoning why we, are, we can believe in the Bible. But another thing we can look at is as far as understanding the Bible is the biblical inerrancy and infallibility and uh, those terms. And we're going to look at that. And inerrancy refers to the original writings. So they were recorded without error and include the specific message that God intended. So we believe the Bible to be, have been preserved over centuries, which it has, and the whole Bible is verbally, the words, and plenarily, all of them equally. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament isn't as inspired as the New Testament, but they're all equally inspired and that it is infallible and inerrant of all matters in which it speaks. Now, some will say, well, why are there versions? Why are there different um, Bibles that we have over time? And they have been shared, part of it, language. But God has preserved his word. And as we understand even that, the miraculous, as we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were discovered to see the accuracy, and sometimes there wasn't even um, decent copies, but we, we can look at that and understand that historically reliable and doctrinally and morally authoritative for our lives. Some state that the Bible contains truth. Well, I think that is misleading because the Bible is truth and truthful in all its statements. So we're going to look at six reasons or six arguments for why we should believe the Bible, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you're there, you can look at uh, Psalm Night, uh, 119, 160, I'm going to read that again before we pray. So Psalm 119, 160, and it says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the truth it gives to us. And Lord, we can know truth through you. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to the text, to study it, to read it, to understand it, and guide us through your Holy Spirit as we interpret it. May we do it correctly, not based upon our own opinion or upon others, but Lord, help us to be faithful in reading it and learning it. And so we ask that you would guide and direct our hearts and thoughts and submit our will to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first thing we want to read, and as we think about a a r- argument or a logical reason for believing the Bible, as we say, believe it because I say so. But it's more than that. We believe, the first thing we see is that we believe the Bible is true because the Bible is God's word. It comes from God. So while we see as a connection, understand that God is truth, and as we learn about God from the word of God, it's not per se circular reasoning, but as we understand and believe in a God who created this universe based upon his power, his position, We believe that the word he gave us is true because if you say you believe in a God but you don't believe in the word of God, what kind of God do you believe in? Or maybe your your thought process is a little misdirected because of a, a God who can create this universe, who is supernatural and can die on the cross and raise from the dead. 
but he can't produce a book that is not what he says it is. And sure, there, usually when mankind gets something, he messes it up, but he has preserved it, and so we can have that. And so some of the things we look at, even as we go through, first of all, it claims to be true. Psalm 19, 7 through 10, if you go back there, and we read some of that, Psalm 19, 7 through 10. It states and says in Psalm 19, 7 through 10, talking about the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Then talking about being more desired than gold, and we are to pursue it. But to understand that it is true, it claims to be truth. This is truth. This is what is right, to even know what to be true. And so it teaches us how to know truth. I don't know if you've ever um, been around someone who is a good liar. They can look at you and tell you. And, and sometimes if you're a bit gullible, you know, if you're the person who looks up gullible to see that it's not in the dictionary, you might, that's usually a gullible person. But um, a person, but sometimes it's innocence. But if you go through and understand what truth is, these people uh, know how to lie. Maybe they've always lied. But um, you have to be careful because they can twist and distort truth. You know, um, there was a pastor, um, there was a, a pastor talking with a lawyer one time, and they're talking um, about, hey, what do you do when you mess up, you know, in a court law or when you say something else? So, oh, I just keep going on, you know, and just no big deal. And then the lawyer asked the pastor, what do you do? You know, oh, I, oh, I do the same thing. Sometimes I mess up, you know, I just keep on going. Like, for example, the other, other day, I, I, I meant to say, Satan is the father of all liars, and I said, Satan is the father of all lawyers, and I just kept going. But to understand what is truth, what is the difference between right and wrong? And no lawyers get a bad rap, but, but um, understanding is to know what is truth, the difference between right and wrong. The problem is sometimes we interpret it. Uh, we try to misinterpret it or change what is truth. Can you really know truth, what is right or wrong? It's, it becomes more of a philosophy. And, the, and in our postmodern world, we don't, many don't believe that there can be absolutes. This is absolutely right or wrong. Well, what about in this situation? Or what about this? Is it wrong? And there are absolutes. Is murder wrong? Yeah. Okay, you're checking. Is that a hypothetical question? Am I supposed to answer? Murder is wrong. It's okay. Yes, it is wrong. It's always wrong. As we understand that, there are things that we understand are wrong and even even looking at what the Bible states and to understand that. But we can know what truth is. Hold, uh, go to John 8.31. John chapter 8.31 in the New Testament. As Jesus shares here um, and talking about the descendants of Abraham in John 8.31, he says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Then 
they answered him saying, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we shall be, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. To understand the truth of even the fact that we are all sinners. And while we still commit sin, and we desire that humanly, fleshly, to do wrong, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to become a child of God, what it means to be forgiven, to know what truth is. It also teaches us how to possess truth. It's one thing to know what truth is, but then also to possess that truth personally. And as we see in Romans 10, 17, if you move ahead and go to Romans 10, 17, And starting in verse 14, just to give you some context, where it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And to understand what truth is, it comes to possess truth, to, to read and to know what the word of God says. That is how we can know truth and to understand even what is right or wrong. But what is right and wrong, we are given a moral conscience. But if we were just to abide by our moral conscience, who's to say what I say is right versus what someone else says is right? But the authority of right or wrong comes from God, and he has given it, it through his righteous judgments and has taught us. The Bible also explains the benefits of knowing truth. Do you know to know truth is good? If we were all deranged individuals who did not have a conscience, did not know what was right or wrong, you know, that would be dangerous. And that's what has happened in today's society, a moral compass. If you think stealing is wrong, oh, you're, you're just stealing from the big guy or, you know, the big corporations. Just go and take things. Or we are to respond in this way. But part of understanding truth and living out truth is a testimony for Christ. John 11, 25 and 26, it states and says, John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were die, shall live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Okay, so first of all, the truth in that is that you shall never die. Well, it says, well, we're all going to die physically, but understanding in a spiritual concept that we are physical and spiritual beings. We could say when we die, we will not exist. But the benefit and understanding is that you believe in Jesus Christ, place your faith and trust in him, then you will have eternal life. And what that means is spiritually, you will still continue. What does that mean? That you will have eternal life and the residence in heaven. 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. That is a benefit because that provides us peace of knowing truth. First of all, knowing that if something were to happen to us, we would be in the presence of God. That gives us peace and reassurance. But that's a truth. There are many who don't have that truth or don't believe that truth. But there's a benefit of knowing truth, and it affects how we live, how we respond to others. 
Second thing we want to look at, not only is the Bible God's word, and so therefore we can believe it to be true, the Bible is historically and scientifically reliable. And I haven't put scripture here, but if we were to look at the book of Acts, we've gone through the book of Acts. We can see records of what has taken place. And it tells us it's a, it's a historical record, the narrative of Paul's events and what occurred. And we can look at other books, but we must remember that the Bible is not only God's word, it is a historical book as well. It records truth. It records events that did occur. And as we understand and measure it against science, and the book of Luke, as he recorded uh, events that took place in the life of Jesus Christ, the Bible is written by 40 authors in over 1,500 years. And think about some of those authors. Think of Moses. Think of Abraham, these individuals. There were judges, there were kings, there were poets. Joshua, who was a general, a physician, a fisherman, a tax collector, rabbi. You know, as we think about it, what we read, sometimes it has to make the bestseller or, you know, they have to have a great biography. But these individuals that God used, they come from all walks of life, but none of them contradicted each other. God supernaturally superintended the Word of God to come together. And the fact that these books came together in the way they did, that they were from God. And think about the circumstances in which they were written, the Bible. You know, Moses. Where was Moses when he wrote some of you know, the Pentateuch. Where was Moses at? Mountain, wandering in the wilderness. So you're wandering in the wilderness, you know, and he's writing these things and he's dealing with all the Israelites who are complaining. You know, most of us would be journaling like, okay, this is what I'm going to do on day three. You know, they complain. Day four, they complain. You know, what, what am I going to do? You know, cannot find food. You know, send help, right? <laughs> How we would look at it. But God superintended. And so they were in the wilderness, Think of Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. Where was he at? You guys got to read through your Old Testament. You know, as you think about it, he was reading. And a lot of times he was in prison, in a dungeon. Remember the king said, okay, guess what? You told us to give up, put him in a dungeon. You know, Paul in prison, somewhere traveling, somewhere in exile. You think about Daniel, the minor prophets, different ones. Some, it was during wartime. Sometimes it was peace. The Bible is written on three different continents and in three different languages in a variety of genres and styles. You know, the Jews didn't, um, didn't think Song of Solomon, some of the other books, or even Esther, they should be in there because it di Esther didn't, doesn't mention the word God. But the providence of God is seen all through. But as we also understand, it is a record that can be measured, and historically, it is a record of the Hebrew nation, the development of it, but also Christianity, the start of Acts, too. And then it's been, what book has been more highly scrutinized and studied than the Bible? Obviously, it's been the most read, but it's also been highly scrutinized. And you have many who, oh, they try to measure against other things, but the Bible measured against itself and the record of it. And it stood up. It has accurate, and archaeology supports it. The Ebla tablets, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Tower of Babel. And hold your, let's, you don't have to hold your spot. Let's go to Genesis 23. I just want to give you an example of how, 
how science and historically, you know, you look at that background and study it. So let's go to Psalm, or excuse me, Genesis 23. In Genesis 23, we have Abraham, and he wants to make a purchase. And in Genesis 23, we see that Sarah has passed away. She lived 127 years old, which is a, a good age. But in verse 3, it says, Then Abraham stood up before his dead um, and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, hear this, O my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then he stood up and bowed and went through there. And we have a little area. And it says in verse 8, And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Malchpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered, the Abra answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, that's the meeting place where business occurred, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. What he's saying is, I don't give you the cave. I give you all the land and property with it. But Abraham doesn't take it. Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is it before, between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron he had. So the field of Ephron, which was in Mac, um Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who were in at the gate of his city. And then he buried her there. And so the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by his sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So it was deeded as a burial place. And I appreciate it because it gives it, it doesn't say that he, he got land as well around it. He could have bought land around there and purchased a place to live there or for other, but he only got it and it's deeded as a burial place. So the question we might ask is why did he just get the land as a burial place? Why didn't he get other property? He could have. And if we look at some, do some research, and um, what happens is Gleason Archer in the survey of the Old Testament. He's reluctant to purchase an entire tract of land. At that time, they would um, purchase more land. But he just asked for the, as a burial place, as the cave of uh, Machpelah, as the burial place for Sarah. And you might wonder why. And because there's the discovery of the, the Hittite legal code in 1300 B.C. explains that in, the owner of entire parcel of land must carry out the duties of feudal service. What that means is, 
Abraham didn't buy an entire parcel of land. As we think about maybe um, buy an acre of land, they were required to buy a larger portion of land at a time. But here he just wants the field and this property for the burial plot. And the reason is because to carry out the duties of feudal service includes pagan religious observances. In the Hittite code, when you owned a portion of land, part of that land or part of it had to be used in the worship of other idols. And Abraham engaged only in a transaction of the cave and the small portion of land as a burial plot identified as burial land, so not as to be involved in the other worship of any other gods besides Yahweh. And it's really interesting because, you know, you would think you would get as much as you want. They would give it to you, you could buy it. But Abraham understood that. We don't always, as we read through the Old Testament, we don't always understand why they do things. We just read it. Culturally, it's a little bit different from from what we understand. And as we move progressively in history, we're farther removed from the original text. And sometimes we forget culturally what that means. But it is there if we search it out. And so as we understand the accuracy of what the Bible says, and we can look at it, it's historically, historically and scientifically accurate and reliable. Number three, the Bible gives us a cogent explanation for the beginning of life. It is a sound. It is defensive, defensible. Even in Genesis 1, what we understand is the beginnings of life. And everyone's going to fight over it. And so, oh, it's evolution. Is it this? Is it God used this? But to understand what the Bible says, first of all, it's unified. It applies to all people of earth. It explains the beginning of how all of civilization began. It is progressive. It explains the process of how we have progressed. Historically, it talks about um, transformation and the movement in time historically. But it also explains the beginning of sin and evil. Where did it come from? How did it occur? It explains why we do bad things. Evolution really doesn't have a rational explanation for sin because if everything's supposed to get better, what happened? And when something occurred, it would cause a dramatic shift in um, the progression of survival of the fittest, understanding that, because it would all be destroyed. Look how quickly civilization turns. But we understand that through Romans 5.12, through one man, sin entered the world, and therefore death passed upon all men. But also through the person of Jesus Christ, life came. But as we understand the beginning of life, yet there is... Um, in the institute of creation research, and sometimes we think about, you know, the explanation of life. A new review, it was in December 2019, a paper published in the journal Expert Review of Pro Proteomics summarizes 85 reports of organic remains in fossils. Now, if you're not familiar with fossils, and if things have been dead for millions and billions of years, you're not going to find organic material. But yet, there are reports, and some of the reports describe whole tissues like blood vessels, dried but intact skin, and connective tissues on or inside fossils like dinosaur bones. Other reports describe whole cells <coughs> like blood cells and bone cells. Other reports in the review paper describe biochemicals specific to animals, not microbes, but including proteins, collagens, elastin, um, ovalbumin, and keratin. And all these reports revealed three trends that call for a vast rethink of the mainstream age of fossils. 
See, as they create, as there's more discoveries made, sometimes it's changing. Even I was um, reading a report about a star uh, of a galaxy far away. They said, all the astronomers said, oh, it couldn't exist. It couldn't exist. Guess what? There was a discovery, and it does exist. So we say, oh, yeah, believe that, and it's not wrong to believe science, but the problem is many people have distorted the idea or concept of what science is. And, you know, those who argue against Christianity, oh, it's just easy believism. You know, they aren't critical in what they believe either. And so sometimes instead, as believers, instead of telling people this is truth or what do you believe, let's say, what do you believe? And, and, and have you searched that out? Well, no, I just believe it because I trust them. As we look at the Word of God, it, while it is trustworthy, it also gives us a cogent or an explainable and defensible understanding of how the world began and in even these other arguments of what we believe and why. Part of apologetics. But also the Bible contains prophecy and makes correct predictions. Uh, famous Nostradamus and others who have made predictions. Oh, the world is going to end. There's some who think, you know, or, or Christ is going to return. You know, we don't know. And they'll always put dates. Everyone tries to plan for something, but, you know, we don't always know. And that's the hard part. But be ready. That's the hard part is being ready, prepared for what will take place. But when it comes to predictions, the Bible talks about predictions, and only the Bible is 100% accurate. Even in the Old Testament, we, we learn about prophets. Or you say, oh, there's this modern-day prophet who's made some predictions that have come true. Well, you can probably follow through signs and do the studies and have some of your predictions come true. Even in, you know, look at stocks. You know, sometimes you see, I can make the predictions. Oh, guess what? This is what's going to occur. And there are patterns. There are things that take place. But a true prophet is one when all other predictions come true because God was the one who gave them insight, says, I'm going to do this. And they would stone someone who wasn't a, a true prophet. But to understand only the Bible is 100% accurate. And as we look at the Bible and to understand the prophecies it has predicted, even as we think about the book of Daniel, most people didn't believe it was right. It was written that old because of the prophecies that it predicted that came true. And only Jesus could fulfill the role of Messiah, as we think about in Isaiah 53, Micah 5, 2. Prediction that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But oftentimes people ignore those predictions. But there are 300 plus predictions of the Messiah. And here, let me just give you some of them, not many of them, but just a few of the Messiah. First of all, in Bethlehem, be born in Bethlehem, that he would be preceded by a forerunner. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be betrayed by a friend. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be crucified. He would be pierced in his hands and his feet. Could go on. But the chance of fulfilling just those few prophecies, or, or the prophecies, are 1 in 10 to the 17th powers. Now, those of you who don't like math, what happens is you take a 1 times 10, and you take like 10, 10 times 10 is what? A hundred, okay? Now you take a hundred times ten and you put to the seventeenth power, you have to do seventeen times. It comes up with a really big number, a lot of zeros, okay? And, and to give you the idea of that, um, Josh McDowell explained it. Okay, what I want you to do is 
fill the state of Texas. Mary's from Texas. Take the state of Texas. It's a big state. Most of us haven't walked across Texas, but it's a big state. Fill it with silver dollars, okay? You could even imagine this room, but imagine a whole state. Texas is bigger than Arizona. So you take the state, fill it with silver dollars two feet deep, okay? Now, I, suppose I put an X on one of them. I throw it out there, you know, and then tell you, okay, go find it. You won't have much of a likelihood. And then it's even more if you, to say, um, if those prophecies to come true, but others, the, the fact that the prophecies were fulfilled by one person, you would take that original mathematical equation and it would be 10 to the 157th power. It's even larger number. It's, you know, hard because we cannot comprehend that number mathematically. We just add a bunch of zeros and say, okay, infinity, right? You ever play that game? Oh, you know, I, I wish I had a million. Why well, I wish I had a billion? I wish I had a trillion. Why well, I wish I had infinity? You know, then we can't go any further, right? Well, just imagine all those zeros, and it's incomprehensible, the whole point. We use the numbers to measure, but to understand that Jesus fulfilling those prophecies. Sometimes we don't think of how, how challenging to comprehend the fact that, first of all, one person could do that. You know, that's amazing. That's exciting, too. You know, if you think about it, we get excited when, you know, we match a bingo, right? You know, if you ever played that as a kid, you know, oh, I got a bingo, you know, how I won. Play these games. But the role of Messiah to come in, the random chance, it wasn't random chance. It was God sovereignly directing. And then only the Bible explains future events. You know, if you would ask people, hey, what do you think is going to happen in the world? Oh, I think climate change, I think all these things are going to occur. You know, what's going to happen? We're all going to get eaten by zombies. That's what the world would say. That's the future events. You know, we're going to have be apocalyptic, you know. But the Bible explains future events. Guess what? Things are going to get bad, and I wouldn't want to be here. It's going to be like zombie land. People are going to want to eat each other because there'll be no food, and things are going to be destroyed. But the Bible explains to us what is going to occur, and we can believe it. We don't know when. So as we understand, and it, read through Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, a lot of people get fascinated by that, and the danger is that they only focus on that. But we need to share the gospel. We need to share the word. All right, number five, the Bible is validated by Jesus Christ. We can believe the Bible because it's validated by Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus knew and interpreted Scripture? And time is short, so let me keep going forward. Uh, Matthew 12, 40. Matthew 12, 40, it states and says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He knew what was going to take place. And he interpreted the scripture and said, guess what? The Messiah is going to be in three days, three nights in the earth, just like Jonah. Jesus lived his life, and it was recorded in Luke 2. He came humbly to the earth as a babe. He grew in wisdom and stature in knowledge. Jesus died and rose again, verifying himself as God. To understand that the forgiveness of sins was received, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. No other person has risen from the dead and, and claims to be still living. It's not like the mummy, and we think about that, you know, people risen from the dead, you know, and they look all wrapped up, you know, it's like, oh, we don't want to look at them. But to understand Jesus claims to be living and still return. We serve a 
a God who was crucified. And we think, why would a God be crucified? Humility as a criminal. But yet, then he tells us to follow him and he's still living. But yet we can understand that Jesus Christ is living and someday he will return. And Jesus fulfilled scripture prophecy. He fulfilled that scripture prophecy in all that was stated. And why did Jesus have to fulfill that prophecy? Part of it because of who he is. You know, he kept his word. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. The hard part, humanly speaking, is we make promises. We say, you know, I'll try to do it, but we fail. We can't always keep our promises. You know, a flat tire or circumstances occur. But God always keeps his promises. And he is trustworthy. And therefore, even understanding faith. Faith is believing that God will do what he promised. Place, faith is placing our trust in an object or person worthy of our trust. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is who he said he is. He's trustworthy. And we can believe the word because it's fulfilled even in his life. So as we see, he fulfilled scripture prophecy. And then number six, the Bible is unique because it explains the role of mankind and the purpose of life. You know, one of the benefits we can believe that it's true is because it explains what our lives are all about. It gives us a rational understanding of why purpose in our lives. We can make sense of it all. You know, without God, a lot of people don't have anything. They search for drugs. They search for finances. They search for anything, the best that they can get out in this world. But when you understand that God has a plan and purpose for your life and to fulfill it, and that he's using you maybe to minister, to be a blessing to others, maybe for them to be a blessing to you, to understand that you have the opportunity to glorify God. It gives you purpose and knowledge and understanding. And it's a story of relationship. Love and forgiveness. Oftentimes, we're searching in the world for identity. But it's only through the Word of God that we learn that a relationship with God gives us forgiveness, that we can be forgiven and have peace. If you think about forgiveness, you know, it's, there's always tension when maybe you've wronged someone and, you know, I'll never forgive you. Or they've wronged you. But to have that reconciliation, a relationship, what it means. And oftentimes it's us that move away from that relationship. The story of salvation, redemption, and eternal life. As we know, Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God not, sent not a son not into the world to condemn the world, but for what reason? That the world might be saved, that they might know what salvation is. The deliverance. Salvation means the deliverance from the penalty of our sins to be rescued. The problem is you got a lot of people swimming out there who don't want to be rescued. They don't, maybe they don't think that they're drowning. Well, also the story of direction, how to live as a believer purpose and direction. Sometimes we wonder where we go. You know, for a long time, ladies, historically, ladies didn't drive, and so they sat by their husbands like, do you know where you're going? Why don't you ask for directions, right? Guess what? They never do. They still don't. But now we have GPS, and so it's probably made it such a blessing for, for everyone on how to get directions. If you're directionally challenged, 
you know, to direction to know where to get. And we don't have excuses except, oh, I didn't have any cellular. But direction, to know where you're going. And sometimes we don't know where we're at. Sometimes we don't know where we're at, but we can know always where we're going. And in our lives, God has given us, say, hey, follow after him. While we don't always know God's plan for our lives, the future, when we obey his will to read the word of God, to grow in our relationship with him, to pray in our circumstances, to respond in a way which will honor him, he will direct us. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It not only shows us what's around us, you know, if you've ever taken, walked on a cliff or near an edge in the dark. Okay, sometimes I think of the Ides, they talk about the Ides of March. There's areas in Ireland, Scotland, that are, you, know, you walk through really dangerous. And there's stories that talk about some of those paths. And if you just have a lantern, because the cliffs are right next to you. And so as you walk, what happens is, if you hold it down, you want to see where you're walking. You can't just look down the path, but a light, as a light will show you far down the path as well where you're headed to be able to make sure, oh, what's ahead, but it'll also show you what's right here because sometimes you need to walk over things. If you've, ever, if you've ever walked with a flashlight and you're shining out maybe in the woods and you're looking along and all of a sudden you hit one of those branches that have fallen apart and you hit that like, oh, you trip over because you're looking ahead. But sometimes a lantern shows you what's in front of you and also what's down the path. And that's what the Word of God does. It, it directs us. And then finally, the story of promise. What will occur in the future to keep his promises? The Bible is full of promises. And they are personal. And we are grateful for those promises. So as we think about, just in closing, we believe the Bible not only because we know who wrote it, but because it is a living book, it tells us how we can have a personal and vibrant relationship with God the Son and honor and glorify Him. And it convicts us of sin and teaches us about life and what truth is. It guides us and shows us our purpose in life. It can and will transform our lives if we read it. Shall we pray?